Hey everybody, and welcome to another new episode of Time Extend. My name is Adam Ismail, and joining me today is... Indon Rorison, but we also have our second guest in the Racing Genre Legends series, Paul Roshinsky, who you might know as Rushy. Rushy, how's it going? Hey guys, I'm doing great, thanks. Racing game fans might know you for being uh, pretty prolific on Twitter, getting engaged with the photo community and racing games and your impressive resume, which includes the likes of WRC, Motorstorm, Drive Club and Onrush. And Adam, we're so excited to have him here on. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, we couldn't ask for another you know, great guest, uh, a better guest for uh, Racing Genre Legends. And, you know, both Brendan and I are huge fans of uh, some of your work. And we are excited to ask you lots of questions about things that you've probably forgotten about 15 years ago. it can be difficult recalling everything but i'll do my best fantastic and uh yeah then thanks for joining us tonight uh i over here i am on the in the northeast in the u.s and it is 6 30 p.m and uh where both of you are it is almost midnight so the beauties of time difference uh always (laughs) always rearing their uh, ugly head here at time extend but we make do yeah, we'll uh, we'll just get into it then. And the way we like to start these conversations, a little bit of an icebreaker, uh, which nobody really likes icebreakers, but we do it anyway because it's, uh, it's a fun place to start, <laughs> uh, is I'm going to ask you, Paul, uh, to give us one non-racing game-related fact about yourself that you think is fun or interesting or people might not know about or whatever you care to share. What non-racing game-related fact about me? Hmm. That's a challenging one because pretty much my entire career is racing related. I guess uh, <laughs> <laughs> there, is, there is one game I think barely anybody knows that I, I used to work on. Um, this was before my time at, at Evolution where I was um, working on Pool Shark 2 of all games. So it's still a sports game, you know, so it's still a little bit crossover, but um, that was my kind of, I don't know. My, my adventure outside of the racing genre. Because even before that, I worked in IndyCar racing, um, another racing title. So that was my, my one adventure outside of the genre. But um, yeah, it's just challenging, really. I've, I've kind of just fallen into racing games. It was always one of those things where racing games were a passion of mine as a player, but I just happened to every job I go into was pretty much racing game after racing game. <laughs> that sounds like a dream, really. I mean, uh, but do you yeah, consider yourself an enthusiast as well? <laughs> mm. So I have to ask then the pool sharks. Are we talking like billiards or? Yeah. Okay. And well, it's well, it's pool. The the studio I was at they specialised in in snooker games. Ah, oh, um, right. I think they were they were called Blade Interactive. I think at the time, um, and they'd done like a, I don't know how many dozen snooker games in the past, and obviously they've done pool shark one, and I I got involved on, on the sequel, and uh, yeah, it was a fun little project with a tiny little team about ten or twelve people. And, you know, I was, I wouldn't say I was a fan of snooker or pool necessarily, but it's one of those things that, you know, having worked in the game, I got into it a lot more. And it, it, was, it was a fun project. It was a, a, a short diversion, let's say, because that was literally just like six to nine months. That was a very short project before I would just dive straight, straight back into racing. That was going to be my next question was, are you very good at snooker? Are you like a professional semi-pro <laughs> snooker <No>. player? <laughs> Hell no. Um, we even... At Evo, we had uh, a break room and we had a pool table. And inside uh, there, we did tournaments and championships. And I, I, I don't even think I got to the quarterfinals of any sort of knockout. So no, I'm, I'm pretty terrible. I mean, you can, 
you can beat me at the pool any day. Oh god, yeah. <laughs> I'll, sti- I'll, I'll, sti- I'll stick to him. I'm, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a terrible sports person, but pool is definitely not one of my strengths. <laughs> well, after this podcast, you're saying then I should invite you to a game of mini clip multiplayer pool. Is that it, Rashid? Um, I might just be hustling you. You never know. <laughs> it's true. My my preferred pool game was always Super Monkey Ball 2's uh, mini game pool. That was a lot of fun. Oh, that was yeah, that whole game was so much fun. Mm. Yeah, great. So, but we're not here to talk about Super Monkey Ball, even though I think that would be a great uh, second podcast for the three of us to do. Uh, we are here to talk about uh, you, Paul, and uh, and your great history uh, developing lots of these awesome racing games. So, you kind of touched on how you got your start in uh, in game development a little bit with the Pool Shark story there, but I mm-hmm. think where it all kicks off really is. Uh, is Evolution Studios correct? So, so how'd that begin? Well, that's that's where it, yeah kicked off really because obviously before that, you know, with IndyCar racing and Pool Shark, you know, I was I was in QA at the time, but um, it was one of those situations where with Evolution, I, I made some contacts. Very fortunately, it was actually back when I was working on the IndyCar race in 2005. I was working with uh, Dave Wilson and Ollie Wright, who were two fantastic guys who went to Evolution Studios. And they, they gave me a recommendation. And so I went for the interview. And uh, somehow they came in a job because I had no experience as a designer. Uh, I'd just worked in the QA for a couple of years. Um, and it was just off the recommendation of those guys that I got the job. And I, that was my first like, design gig where I got the opportunity to jump straight on board and um, start working on WRC uh, Rally Evolved. I was playing a little bit of Rally Evolved um, before this show. And, and as I... Uh, I recently wrote the story on GT Planet kind of about WRC games and lamented the fact that Rally Evolved didn't come out in the US. So um, when I was playing it, I was like, it was like a whole aspect of uh, of the WRC franchise that was kind of uh, very foreign to me. But um, I really enjoyed my, my time with it. And so you joined with Rally Evolved. What was your capacity then when you were working on that game? I was a designer. Um designer with no experience so i was kind of thrown right in the deep end it was a really wow. fun job because i was coming i was given the responsibility to design the whole front end so the whole ui user experience obviously i didn't do any of the visuals i'm not an artist i just kind of put together the whole flow i rigged all the ai for all the all the um super rally cross stages where you've got four cars and track racing against one another i tuned all the difficulty and did a lot of work on kind of handling as well. I uh, spent a lot of time with um, kind of the physics guy, who's uh, Roderick Kennedy at the time, and uh, he's kind of one of these one of these genius type guys. And I spent I think at least six months locked in a little room with him. I was sat in the steering wheel. I was saying tweak this, tweak that, and he'd just change a few numbers behind me. And then before I knew it, like you know, the handling was you know ten steps better than it was like half an hour ago. It was. Uh, really fun and enlightening experience because you know as i said i've never done anything like that prior to that job i've just learned so much on the job you know very little experience you know i've been to uni doing a games design course obviously what's in qa but it's nothing like the real thing so it was it was a fantastic opportunity that i gave me the trust to kind of throw me in the deep end and i know it's an established franchise and you know working on the fifth in the series is going to be easier than starting from scratch but um yeah that was that was a really fun Really fun job that, and that kind of really kind of got my teeth into racing games, and that kind of kicked on my career from there. Really, it's like an, an interesting situation where, like, you get that incredible first opportunity, 
and you're thrown right in the deep end, like you're saying, but also working on an established franchise, are you kind of grateful almost that there was a framework for those WRC games that you could kind of get a vibe for? Or was it kind of oh. difficult with no experience going straight into that? No, I think that I think that really helped having that sort of framework. You know, because I was quite familiar with the, the previous WRC titles as a racing game fan, so I've played them all, understood them all, and seen how they've you know, changed and evolved over time. So kind of diving into it felt like quite natural, really, because I kind of knew were, you know, what I wanted to do. Obviously, I wasn't the lead designer at the time. I was working with um, Simon Barlow, who'd worked on all, I think, most or all of the previous WRC titles. And you know, he kind of really showed me the ropes and the held my hand for a lot of things. And he had a, a vision for what, you know, what he wanted the game to be, along with the game director, Matt Southern, at the time. Um, so yeah, it was it was actually even though I was trying to deep end, you know, it was lots of really experienced guys helping me out and um, you know showing me the ropes if anything else. Because one of the crazy things about jumping into that team, I think it was about thirty guys working on the project, and the majority of those guys have been working together for you know a long, long time. I mean, people have been in the industry for way more than a decade, and I've you know just got my start really. Um, and so having that sort of experience and that sort of talent around you. It kind of gives you, you know, the energy, the passion, and uh, the support that you need to, you know, to grow as a, a you know, in, inside a creative industry. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like the perfect place to be, uh, you know, to to start your career there with all the people who you were saying working together and an established franchise. Also, Sony being, you know, on top of the world at that time, and you working closely with uh, with Sony as part of Evolution Studios into the next generation, right? Yeah, I mean, that was a interesting kind of shift afterwards. Obviously, I was under BRC5, and at the time, that was when, you know, the PlayStation you know, 3 was kind of uh, happening in the background, and there was another smaller team starting to put, to get, put together ideas for, you know, what we'd be doing on, on that platform. Um, we knew it was going to be racing. You know, that's, that's what the team specialised in. It was always really a question of, you know, what type of racing? How are we going to change things up? You know, WRC as a... As a franchise, we loved. Um, you know, I, you know, in that short period of time working on WC5, it was one of those games I kind of really fell in love with. But obviously, some of the guys have been working on the game for, for how many years um, since the original. Um, but everyone kind of knew that WRC as a sport wasn't really growing, and we wanted to kind of open it up to a much, you know, a bigger worldwide audience, appeal to the Americas and other territories around the world. So we knew we had to do something fresh. And I think with the off-road sort of skill, you know, I think doing some sort of um, off-road racer was obviously the natural fit for us. But um, we had to do something kind of unique, something that, you know, would uh, stand out from the crowd. You know, because there's, there's a ton of racing games. There's a lot of quality out there. So uh, I think one of the key goals for Mortstone was, you know, what can we do to kind of really give the racing genre a fresh injection of, of life, you know, especially in the off-road space. Um, and I think that was kind of directed by uh, Martin Camera at the time and Nigel Kershaw, fantastic designers, and they kind of really pushed this idea of this kind of brutal off-road racing in, in lots of crazy um, contrasting vehicles, all of which stood the same chance to win the race. So, yeah, that that was fun, kind of seeing that happen whilst I was working on Rally Evolved and seeing those guys kind of get their ideas together and start to pull together that kind of that pitch, that high-level goal for the game was was awesome. And then obviously after. Um, WC Rally Evolved wrapped up once we shipped that and um, uh, then it was a kind of everyone on board Motorstone and it kind of really ramped up because we went from a team of I don't know, 30 people on WC 
well evolved and then it was kind of felt like the moment i jumped on the team we doubled in size the next day <laughs> so like we we're up to 60 plus and then before we knew it i think we almost peaked at like 75 or something on on the original Warpstorm. it was a whirlwind of development that one working on Warpstorm. i can think back to when i first saw that game running and it was it was probably uh the retailer or something like that and uh i i just i didn't know games could be that beautiful like it was just it, it seemed at the time like an astonishing technological achievement and uh i don't know i i feel like i'm not alone in that like it was it was not only a lot of fun to play um but it just really was one of the few examples you know how when the system launches it's like well some of these games are kind of ports of stuff that was in the previous generation some of this stuff is just like put onto a new system to kind of uh get a game out there motherstorm really felt like like the next big step up and and i can imagine it must have been tremendously exciting it was it was really exciting but it's also quite a a daunting or scary period as well because you know we were transitioning from a piece of hardware that we'd worked on for however many years you know intimately familiar with the playstation 2 and moving on to playstation 3 was completely foreign it was an entirely different beast uh of which you know the the tools and things that you needed as a developer to really kind of get up and running quickly weren't there initially. So it was very challenging. And, uh, you know, up until, I don't know, nine months, maybe 12 months before the game was due to launch, we're in a situation where we were still playing with, you know, quite primitive-looking stages, primitive-looking vehicles, not much damage. And, um, you know, that was kind of like, oh, right, the launch date's rather soon and there's a hell of a lot to do. But we had so many talented guys in the team. You know, I was so fortunate to be surrounded by, you know, some of the best graphics engineers I've, you know, ever worked with. Um, you know, who have I consider to be geniuses in the field, and you know, they really kind of, you know, pulled it out of the bag. You know, in that very short period of time, that last six months in particular, it kind of felt like we we built the whole game in that in that kind of that very short period. And uh, yeah, it was it was thrilling, but also. It was one of those times where, you know, you realize just how hard game development is. Um, you know, there were some, some tough times um, in terms of, you know, putting in the effort and the hours to, to get that game done on time. But it was it was definitely a you know, project um, of passion for many people. And um, we wanted to make sure it had its best chance at launch. And yeah, I think we did a, a pretty good job in the end, given the, the challenges, circumstances surrounding it. From my standpoint, I mean, this is the thing, Rushy. I didn't actually... I didn't get on too well with the original Motorstorm, funnily enough. <laughs> um, I, I was of the sequel, Pacific Rift, and that was one of the questions I wanted to ask. Like when I, when I think about the Motorstorm series, it really seemed as if that game properly took off. Like I always remember, I went to my uncle's house who had the PlayStation Three. He didn't care about racing games at all, but he just wouldn't shut up about Pacific Rift. <laughs> like he's constantly talking about like the vibe of the game and the the great soundtrack and just all of that. Do you feel as if like in Pacific Rift you took what you learned from like, the original game and applied it uh, even yeah. further? Because it seemed as if it, it played slightly uh, more intuitive and the track design was incredible as well. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things. Whenever you work on an original game, the sequel is, I don't know, for, for racing games in particular, you always see that the second game is generally better. And it's one of those things that we had the time to polish, refine and reflect on what we did in Mortstorm. And if I go back to play Mortstone right now, you can kind of see where it's it's rough around the edges in some places. There's difficulty spikes all over the place. There's some bits that are unbalanced, but there's there's a roughness and you know readiness to that game which I still love. 
But yeah. as you say, Pacific <laughs> Pacific Rift is a much better game. The, the the course is a better design. The handling is more refined. The balance between the classes is much better. It's got much more variety. It's got better mechanics inside there in terms of what we did with the boost. Uh, you know, it's even got more modes. Um, you know, more multiplayer uh, functionality. It was a very complete experience. And, you know, Mortstorm at launch was quite a skinny product, the original, original game. Obviously, we built upon it, we added in uh, the multiplayer, the time trial, and, and other elements over time. But obviously, Pacific Rift was the one where I think we delivered on all, our, all of our promises. And then we even, I think, went beyond all of that with the DLC that we actually uh, pushed out for that game as well. So, yeah, Pacific Rift was, you know, again, I think everyone on the team could be truly proud of as something that we, you know, spent a lot of time and love on. And um, hopefully, we kind of ticked all the boxes and you know, made a lot of uh, the fans pleased, you know, because um, you know I enjoyed working on that one, and that was my first gig as um, as lead designer on that oh, project. Wow. So that was that was particularly kind of a proud moment for me as well to be able to you know lead the design of a game as well and um, deliver you know to what I wanted with it. No, that that was the one that I actually that really got me into Murder Storm. Like I had the first one, uh, and I I played it. Like I said, I had fun with it, but Pacific Rift was the one that. Uh, one of those games that you only realize after you've sunk however many hours into it, like, wow, I've been playing this a long time. And then, like, all of a sudden I realized, like, oh, all these songs from the soundtrack are getting stuck in my head. Like, uh, it had that, the one Nirvana song, Swap Meet. I just absolutely love mm-hmm. that. Just, you know, absolute yeah. calamity and destruction to that song. It was such a perfect <laughs> a perfect pairing. <laughs> and I think... Uh, any any racing game that also has the right soundtrack to go with it, it usually it usually sticks in your mind for a longer amount of time. It kind of transcends uh, your memories and just uh, becomes almost like this emotional experience when the music's Absolutely. right. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. You can thank um, Alan McDermott for that. He was uh, the kind of orchestrator of the soundtracks for both the uh, original Mortal Kombat and Pacific Rift. Um, he did a fantastic job of picking just the right music for those two titles. So I have to ask then, because we're on the topic of, uh, you know, we're talking about Pacific Rift and uh, leading into Apocalypse, and we had a, an episode, one of our first episodes of Time Extend, we talked about unreleased racing games, um, and I had heard about this game called Urban Smash uh, that I believe you might know something about. Can you uh, shed Ooh. light on that? Uh, that's a tricky one, actually. I'm not quite sure how much you can say. Obviously, I can confirm that it was a game. Um, that was being worked on at Evolution Studios as uh, a kind of a second project on the side as to, I think it was when we were nearing finishing Pacific Rift. You know, we knew we were going to do a sequel to Mortstorm, uh, do another kind of take on, on that franchise, but we also wanted to kind of branch out and do something different. So uh, we had a second team starting to work on something, still a racing game, but something quite different uh, as a racing title. Um and it's just one of those things where it, I think it showed a lot of promise, but for whatever reason, it didn't quite get off the ground. Um, you know, some of the prototyping proved that um, there were some really fun elements, but also problems that, that still needed solving. And, you know, we were getting to the point where I think we're, we were moving on to Apocalypse, and Apocalypse was kind of moving on quite smoothly, really, if anything else. And so it was like, well, I think, you know, it's time to put all the effort and focus onto Apocalypse and make that the best game it can be, so... It's one of these things where in games development, there's often lots of little side projects and, and spin-offs and, um, and things that just don't work out. A lot of time, you don't tend to hear about these things. Um, you know, I'm, I'm surprised, you know, about Urban Smash. I, I can't remember whether or not there was any leaks on that, uh, which is why I'm being 
Well, there uh, was, um, what I can tell you is that I was, I read, I think Eurogamer might have had an article on it or something like that going back mm-hmm. to like, it must have been like GDC 2009 or 2010 or something. And, uh, they were talking about somebody presented, um, some sort of animatic, uh, pre rendered thing uh. on Urban Smash that was very rough and like the, uh, nothing was really textured, but just watching kind of uh, you know double decker buses and bikes kind of go through buildings and go through uh, plate glass windows and stuff like that. Uh, it looked really cool. Yeah, yeah, I remember that one actually. Yeah, because yeah. I think we learned a lot on that kind of initial prototype on damage and destruction, which is a lot of the stuff we kind of took into Apocalypse, uh, which is all about obviously destroying cities. Yeah, that's um, the one thing I couldn't figure out was how much of it was Urban Smash just you know pretty much the the idea for apocalypse and then it was always going to be a motherstorm game or was it its, its own thing you know i think it, it was going to be its own thing it was definitely hmm. going to be a tight like a sun that's on two feet uh and kind of branch out and do something different i think a third motorstorm was kind of always on the cards just because you know the original motorstorm was such a big success uh Pacific Rift followed, up, followed up really well and there was still uh you know a fan base and appetite for more motorstorm games so you know i think that was always going to come it would have been fantastic, I think, if Urban Smash uh, would have um, you know, been given the opportunity to be a, a second project. Evolution might have been much bigger. Studio doing lots of different things by now, but obviously, you know, this, this is how things work out. I mean, I think um, there was another project, which I'm not going to name, uh, which had a similar sort of fate. I think that was after Apocalypse, when we were looking to, you know, to build a racing game, but also at the same time, there was another little team uh, and they were prototyping another idea. Uh, and again, it was one of those situations where the prototype had sort of lots of promise, um, but Drive Club was kind of build, building momentum at the time, and I think Sony wanted to put all the emphasis and focus on that product to make it as good as possible. So again, you know, projects just, just ha- you know don't always get off the ground. Um, and it's a shame, but it's one of those things you got to look at the, the, the business realities and all these sort of factors that go into making decisions as to you know what games do go forward and which don't. Well, I mean, on on that note, then um, to dial it back slightly, you were saying like Apocalypse, the development cycle was smooth, and you guys obviously felt good about that one. Mm. Was there, was it a bit of a annoyance or gutter that the the Japanese earthquakes kind of delayed the game quite a bit? Did you feel as if that actually influenced how it was going to perform sales wise? Was it one of those moments you were just like the timing could have been more coincidental? I mean uh, yeah I mean uh, obviously you've got to think about the the events that took place and how how serious that was and the loss of life Um, and so you know the timing obviously of Apocalypse was you know, hugely unfortunate, and you know, couldn't have been worse from a from a, a product perspective. Let's say, um, you know, because the, the kind of build up to launch, the timing of that, and the press that goes around it is, you know, hugely important to make a game successful. Um, and given the circumstances as to what happened, you know, a lot of the the marketing and the the, the timing of everything had to be changed and. Yeah, that, it it no doubt had an impact on on the game's success, which was, you know, hugely frustrating from a from a creative point of view. Uh, but when you put it into, into perspective as to what happened, um, you know, it's one of those things that just had to be done. Of course, I understand that it was pretty much unprecedented. Yeah, because I, I was on the kind of uh, press build up or the press tour of, um, and we were obviously promoting the game and. 
I had a, a message super early from Mike Humphreys, one of the other designers on the project, uh, super early in the morning. And I said, have you seen the news? And I'm like, what news? And they sent me a link to what had happened. And it was like, oh my, you know, it was, wow. yeah, it, it was one of those moments that kind of, I just sat in the hotel room at the time for like half an hour, just trying to come to terms as to, as to what has happened. And, you know, that was, yeah, yeah, that was, that was one of the low moments, let's say, in kind of uh, in my career at the time. That was because it was kind of like we were on a high, almost kind of getting ready to launch. Super pleased with the game, and then obviously it all kind of had to really kind of take a back seat, uh, you know. Um, and it was the right decision by Sony what they did. Um, but yeah, it, it did mean that Apocalypse wasn't the success it could have been. Was the plan always like um, at the time to have that trilogy of Motorstorm games, or was there still a, a bit of belief that there maybe could be a fourth game? Do you feel as if if Apocalypse had performed slightly better, you would have carried that franchise to the PS4, or else was it very much? Um, you, you talked about the fact that there was the side project and Drive Club. Was it always the case that Drive, uh, sorry, uh, Motorstorm was going to be the PlayStation 3's flagship franchise before Evil moved on? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think. It could have continued. I think that amongst the the people in the studio, I think there were enough really cool ideas that could have spawned, you know, a fourth title. Well, not well, not te- technically it wouldn't have been a fourth because obviously there was Arctic Edge and there was RC. There was other spin-offs and stuff. But in terms of like, like you know, the the, um, the true series titles, yeah, the fourth one. I think I think that could have happened, but only if Apocalypse would have been a success. Um, but on the counterpoint to that, I think there's there were also people in the studio who who've worked on Motorstorm for you know for quite a few years. I think it was what 2006 to 2012, something like that. And there were people in the studio who wanted a fresh start, wanted to do something different, and uh, you know people wanted to get back to real racing. You know people who you know loved working in WRC and wanted to go back to working on on real cars. So you know there were lots of different people in the studio with different passions, pushing for different things, and. Um, but ultimately, it comes down to business decisions, and Apocalypse wasn't a big success. It it could or should have been, and um, uh, I think Sony wanted to look, at, you know, to do different projects with us. And we had a couple of games. Obviously, one I mentioned that didn't go forwards, but obviously, Drive was one they really kind of, you know, bit into and um, liked the idea of. So that was the one we kind of we kind of pushed forward on. Yeah. So that explains um, kind of where Drive Club came from, because I remember being surprised when I. Uh when I watched the PS3 reveal, I think it was uh, early in 2013 or something like that when Sony had their event. I think it was Matt walked out and introduced Drive Club and I was amazed that Evolution Studios' new project was uh, was not another Motorstorm or not something more destructive, off-road, you know. Yeah, I think it surprised a lot of people, but it was it was kind of coming back to our roots. You know, the, the WLC games were a simulation. You know, they, we took a real-life sport um, and engineered that on, on the PlayStation 2. I think you know, faithfully recreated it, and I think that's something we knew we could do, and it's a challenge we wanted to kind of take to the to the next generation, because uh, obviously the PlayStation Four is a piece of hardware we were hugely excited about because Sony learned so much from the launch of the PlayStation Three in terms of not only the hardware, the tools, the support. Um, that was a bit of a, a joy to work on in, in comparison, and you know, um, yeah, it was it was something that we really felt we could. We could make you know some stunning visuals, um, some amazing audio to make, create a, a fantastic driving experience on. 
Yeah, I, I've heard so many things about uh, from various developers about how the PS3 was, uh, shall we say, not the easiest system to work on, uh, and the PS4 was a, a good, good sight better in that regard. Oh yeah, it's worlds apart. Absolutely worlds apart. I mean, it's one of those things where <clears throat> I mentioned before back in Mortstorm, you know, those final six months, you know, I think, you know, 90% of the development was done within that time because that was the only real point in, in, in its development where we had all the final tools and the hardware and the things that we needed to actually build the game. There was such a long time spent on, you know, kind of the PC hardware, uh, which was like prototype, pulling things together, would not really having a full understanding of the SPU architecture. Um, whereas PlayStation 4, you know, we, we knew so much in advance. We had access to the, the hardware, documentation, software, everything super early, and the tools were really useful. Um, and they still are. I mean, the PlayStation 4 is still a joy to work with. Um, they've got a lot of things they've just nailed perfectly um, in terms of allowing you to, to debug, analyze performance, and do all the things that just make development you know, easier. Because development is hard. It's, it's, a, it's a very challenging job. And you know, these sort of things can save a lot of time and effort whereby you can spend that time and polish. You can make the game a better experience you don't have to worry about all these little things and it's just kind of taken care with nowadays so yes yeah, pleasure to work in this new environment i say new seven years done now <laughs> <laughs> i mean on that note then it was pretty interesting when the playstation 4 was going to launch that uh, gran turismo was um, nowhere to be seen and because obviously gran turismo 6 had launched on the ps3 pretty similarly time frame wise did mm. you feel as if um there was like a good level of even pressure, but just expectancy from Sony's part that Drive Club could take the the kind of first party racing game mantle in the meantime, or even push further than that. Like, was there a lot of a lot of um, confidence in the project on Sony's part? Yeah, it was definitely one of the things where we knew where we we you know, we had to be the kind of premier driving experience on on the platform. We knew that Gran Turismo wasn't going to be there, um, and you know. We, we also knew that we weren't necessarily going to be competing directly with Gran Turismo either. They were, they were full-on sim title, and we wanted to do something that's a, you know, significantly more accessible and social at the time. Um, and we wanted to make the best stab at it to make it, you know, our own unique take on the product. But yeah, I mean, there was there was pressure from Sony. We needed to make a, a fantastic launch product. PlayStation Four at the time wasn't the success it is now in terms of at launch. Nobody really knew how well it was going to go. Um, obviously, it's turned into a you know, massive success now. We sold 95 million units. Um, but, you know, they wanted strong launch software and Drive Club was going to be one of those. Um, so they needed quality games to be able to, to sell the system and show the capabilities of what the hardware could do. Um, so, yeah, that was, it was, you know, there was, there was pressure there. It was, and it wasn't the easiest project necessarily because there was lots of changes behind the scenes in terms of um, the development staff and, uh, the, the kind of social back end, let's say, of the game. And so obviously it wasn't a smooth launch, as we all know. But um, I'm glad how it turned out, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I I struggle to, to ask the question where they go wrong because I, I was playing the game last week and I still, I, I felt about this way at the time and I feel the same way about now that it really is, uh, it's one of my favorite racing games, I think, ever and definitely of this generation. Uh, and I really, really enjoy Drive Club and it turned out fantastically with all the DLC and everything. But, you know, the flip side of that is, uh, you know, launched, obviously, without the multiplayer component working well. 
And mm-hmm. from what you're describing, uh, it sounds like it, it was like kind of the social back end and everything that, that was the problem, not so much just like you had the game working from a core fundamental standpoint, but all of the connectivity aspects were the issue? Yeah, I, I would say like, you know, the actual driving aspect was an area you know, I had utmost kind of confidence in. You know, our, our track designers, um, our handling tuners, physics guys, etc. We knew we had a game that played great. Um, it was just some of the infrastructure which which was new to us, really. Obviously, we, you know, we worked on multiplayer, um, time trial, and all these sort of connect, connect, connected elements in the past. But we were, we were trying to be ambitious, trying to do something new, trying to do something different. And, you know, there were some areas where we probably were short on a little bit of experience. And we made some mistakes. You know, developers are... Fallible. Uh, we don't get things right first time uh, all the time, as you can as you can see by so many live service games nowadays. Where um, it's kind of exposing, you know, some of the, the the challenges of game development and you know how how hard it is to get it right sometimes. So it was disappointing. Uh, I'm just so pleased that we managed to you know turn it into something that we, everyone could be proud of. definitely a, a spectacular turnaround i mean I, I wrote an article for gt planet uh just after the edinburgh track was released kind of recapping mm. the story and upon reading it back it really just showed how great a job evolution did because when you think about the post-launch support the club's personally the best like the amount of content you guys turned around and the phenomenal dynamic weather as well and then drive club bikes like the, the list is pretty much <laughs> There's always a reason to go back, and even I was obsessed with even the accolades system in the game as well. Just like any time a new manufacturer get added, it was just like I've got to drive those miles, and not there was always something to do. <laughs> it, honestly, the post-launch support then did did evolution and yourself feel like that was the way it was always going to turn out, or else did you start to even surprise yourself with the quality of the content? I think we we surprised ourselves a little bit, and I, I, I think we bit off a little bit more than we could chew. I think because it was one of those things where we knew the PlayStation Four and that kind of generation was kind of bringing a, a new breed of products. You know, where you didn't just put a disc out and that was it. The game's done. Move on to the sequel. Um, and we obviously back on Pacific Rift and other titles in the past. We had you know kind of played around with DLC a little bit here and there, and so when we you know, launched Drive Club, I guess, prior to that, we planned, you know, having a season pass. We wanted to do something which was um, there to support the game for, you know, a long period of time after launch. And we had this um, idea of making sure we had this kind of monthly rollout of content with new tracks, new cars, new features, new modes. And uh, I think we promised a lot, a lot up front on that season pass. Um, and Looking back, I would have I would have changed that. I would have delivered less because it was a challenge to meet all those goals, especially when there's so many things going on in the background. Because when you're working with uh, manufacturers and licensing, you know if anything changes behind the scenes, you know you don't get a deal signed or you don't get the audio captured on the particular car, you don't get the CAD data you want to 
the build, the car's interior, you know, any of those little details that go awry means you have to have a four-bot pan. So managing that kind of season pass was, you know, a big challenge and, you know, something that as a team we hadn't done kind of live development. You know, you're not working on a product where, um, you know, you've got a couple of years to kind of get it right and a few months to kind of polish those bugs. You're, you're launching patches monthly at a minimum, you know, sometimes it's two to three patches a month. And that was, that was crazy initially. We weren't familiar with that sort of kind of frequency of updates and making sure we had something checks and balances in place to ensure that every single patch that went out, we didn't break anything. We always wanted to make sure that, you know, it was always a positive, you know, net positive improvement every single time we made a change or balancing uh, refinement or, you know, added new content, you know, knock anything out of whack. So um, it's a huge, huge amount of fun, you know, combined with that stress. But I think we kind of got into our groove. I think towards the end of the season pass, we had that kind of real confidence in knowing what we were doing and I think that led on to bikes and obviously we we're still, you know, delivering additional DLC on top of that as well. And um, yeah, I think that's one of those things where I could have done for another couple of years, keep building on the game because it was a fantastic platform that we had. And it would have been awesome to be able to continue uh, just building, you know, drive towards the universe into something much bigger. But obviously things didn't work out that way. Yeah, I think it found its groove as a service. I think that's even when I, as much as I enjoyed, you know, the act of physically playing the game, that's when I it really started to click with me. I was like, okay, I understand what this can be, and I fully believe in it. Uh, and I think a lot of players felt the same way. But as you're working on all this content, as you're doing all this work, and and working, the team's working their tails off to to get all this DLC out, and it's you're hitting at a consistently, you know, great quality. Is there this? you know kind of feeling in the back of your mind like we're we're putting in all this work we're throwing our souls into this but was there a thought that the future of the studio is uncertain the future of the of the franchise is uncertain was it like you're doing all this great work in the short term but you're you're a little bit concerned about the future was there any of that the only point where i think there was a bit of concern was actually you know in those first six months after launch were where things weren't going smoothly I think the moment we kind of fixed the core problems and then started to roll out the content, uh, I think we had a huge amount of confidence then because uh, we we knew the core of the game was great and it was just the platform then to continue to build upon. And every month we knew we were making a better and better game. So um, no, I don't I don't think any of us kind of were were too worried about it. If anything, it was kind of like we were kind of excited to see where we could take things going forwards and. Um, you know, after Bikes got such a good reception and we were so pleased with how that turned out again, we thought, well, you know, there's lots more scope for what we can do in this drive universe. So, yeah, it was a surprise when, you know, things didn't work out, but that's just the nature of business sometimes. So what kind of vehicles would you have added after Bikes then? Uh, <laughs> <choose> anything. <laughs> we, had, we had a long, long list of things. Um, again, these are sort of things I, I don't think I can say, but... Uh, but you know, we had a lot of ideas, and I think there was a lot of scope for keeping that kind of the, the core formula that we built fresh by adding in lots of really new and exciting kind of layers to the game and building it out into something where I think could have brought in an even broader audience of racing fans. One of the things I always think about was um, when it got revealed that Criterion were toying around with the ideas for like aeroplanes for Burnout Paradise, and it was like. I can't even imagine how that could have worked, but it just goes to show the kind of 
crazy things you could do to keep the game yeah. fresh. I will say one thing: we never considered um, any sort of um, a flying vehicle of any form. <laughs> um, there were always four or two, or maybe even three wheels in some instances that we were kind of, you know, we wanted to kind of continue with. Um, yeah, it would have been nice to get back to some off-road stuff as well, but it helped. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think um, when the, the Wombat was added, that was really cool. Was that for April Fool's Day? It was April that Fool's. Car? Yes, that that was... Oh, uh, cool. <laughs> yeah, I remember when I had that idea and I kind of pitched it. And there was, there was quite a lot of resistance because um, people thought that because we were spending all the time and effort to build the vehicles, do the handling, and then to kind of sell it as an April Fool would undermine the work that went into it. But I was like, no, no, it'd be great publicity for it when people find out it's actually real. Well, you got to remember, I've been on the GT Planet forums and people were like, wait, what? Is, is this actually happening? And the level of detail was incredible. Like, it seemed as if the suspension and everything was modelled like, incredibly well. It was probably one of the most elaborate April Fools we've seen in the genre. <laughs> yeah, uh, it probably is. And uh, I think our vehicle guys in particular absolutely love working on that because... Quite a lot of the same vehicle guys, you know, worked on previous Motorstorm titles, so it was kind of a, a thrill for them to go back, rebuild one of those vehicles on next gen hardware, and kind of showcase what it what it could have looked like if we made Motorstorm on on PlayStation Four. You put that thought in everyone's minds as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is really funny. I remember uh, after they came out with the communities aspect of the PlayStation Network release that on PS4. I remember popping into the Drive Club one, and uh, even a, a good chunk of Drive Club fans were were like, "Where's our new Motor Storm?" So I almost felt like I read that as like uh, kind of tossing them a little uh, a little crumb of something. Like, here you go. Yeah, I mean, uh, from from my perspective, there was a little bit of um, strategy in there for my for my angle to try and look to go look. We've put this uh, this game this uh, vehicle into the game and. It's hugely popular, and I can go back to the management team and go, "Look, everyone's racing with the Wombat Typhoon. Mm. They love it. There's there's an appetite for uh, for this to build a, a new monster or something. Then maybe it's something that they could have rolled with and pushed forward. But it, it's a challenging one, you know. It's it's trying to pitch, you know, ideas for titles that you know kind of fallen by the wayside and bring them back alive. And it was maybe a bit too soon after Apocalypse as well, potentially, even though it felt like quite a long time in terms of. You know those kind of short, you know, short lifespans of consoles. It's not really that big a difference. What four, or five years? You know, when you look at like big reboots and um, HD remakes and all those sort of things, you're looking at definitely longer than that. So, so that that covers uh, the Drive Club pretty pretty well. And we talked about Motorstorm, and obviously you and your team go through another huge change. Evolution closes, uh, and then mm-hmm. Codemasters just comes to the rescue right um and mm. yeah so so i guess what was that like <laughs> that changeover what an interesting transition let's say um you know it's one of those things where you know when we found out that you know things were going to change at evolution and you know we're gonna have the doors closed there was a lot of panic um but you know we were very fortunate um you know with with some support in the background and um nick hocking being a big help into engineering this deal to get put us in a position where we could actually just you know not roll immediately into um but you know very shortly after we closed we we're able to 
kind of almost reopen uh, with you know 99% of the the same guys and been given this chance, this opportunity by Codemasters to go and build um, a racing game of our choice. Yeah, and Onrush was uh, when I first uh, when I first heard about it. Again, it was another another instance where I feel like the uh, the evolution team was giving me something I wasn't expecting, but was intrigued. Where did the idea for that game come from? Was it something that you kind of sat down with Codemasters or people from Codemasters and was like, "We'd like to do this"? Oh, we would too. Or had you been ruminating about that for a while? No, it was it was actually an idea that after um, Evolution had closed, it was um, myself, uh, Richard Weaver, who was the creative director and uh, Jim Brayshaw, assistant game director on the project. We were down the pub, um, technically unemployed at that time, and we were just kind of, uh, you know, having a beer and trying to, you know, you know get some creative ideas um, flowing. And the idea, well, just kind of, we were all, I wouldn't say tired of racing games, but we were kind of, we worked on so many traditional racing games for quite a long time. Mortstorm Tours kind of became traditional in some respects, even though it was quite different at the time. And we wanted to kind of break outside our comfort zone, do something different, um, you know, with the knowledge that what we're going to do next, we're probably not going to have the same sort of budgets or timeframes or team sizes and all these sort of things to develop, um, you know, a racing game that can go head to head with, you know, Forza or, or games like that. So we wanted to make sure we could build something that was completely unique, you know, not seen in the racing genre before, something that could stand in its own two feet and say, you know, this hasn't been done. Um, and also, you know, try and bring in that, that wider audience. We wanted to make sure that this wasn't just for racing fans. Obviously, we wanted to appeal to racing fans, and I hope it did. Um, but, you know, we also want to make sure we can bring in those people who play uh, Overwatch or Rocket League or FIFA and, um, you know, bring in that more casual audience as well to maybe, you know, bite their teeth in racing games a little bit and then hopefully, you know, enjoy the rest of the genre as well. It's a very interesting story to hear how Onrush actually came about because, I mean, you must have expected that there would be some people just like, why isn't this Motorstorm? Even from the very first time you showed off the game. Oh, yes. It's one of those things that we would have been in a very, um, I guess, well, it's, you've got to be very careful when you're... You know, <laughs> When you're moving, like, we, obviously we moved from Sony and we joined Codemasters and it would have been a tricky relationship, let's say, if we would have gone and just made up a straight up Motorstorm ripoff. Because um, <laughs> we left on very good terms with, with Sony, uh, even though obviously things didn't work out, we still had you know, a vested uh, partnership with them. Obviously we, we were going to work with Codemasters, develop on the platform on the PlayStation 4, so it was important to us to keep that strong relationship going forwards and so they could support us on the platform. Um, and I think it wouldn't have gone down very well if we would have, you know, taken what was essentially their IP, well, is their IP, and kind of ripped it off. Um, it's one of those things where the game is in the, it's a small place. And, you know, you don't want to, um, you know, sour any relationships or cause any friction. So, you know, we knew that, you know, doing something like a Motstorm ripoff would not have gone down well. Um, so, you know, politically, it would have been a very unwise decision, even though it would have been fun to kind of work on a Motstorm style game. Yeah. We knew that, you know, it could have caused friction, let's say. Well, I mean, that's fair enough. And by the sounds of it, the, the, the main players and coming up before Onrush anyway were, were ready to try something different. So maybe it wasn't a bad thing to have that restriction that you couldn't just make another Motorstorm and 
I think Onrush actually benefited from that different kind of thinking because, I mean, personally, I'm somebody who is a big advocate for the game. I absolutely loved it. I was one of those people right away, like, I even convinced Adam to, to give it a proper go. <laughs> yeah. Because... First couple episodes of Time Extender, definitely uh, us every other week saying, go, go play the beta, <laughs> go play the game, <laughs> go try it. <laughs> But I can totally understand why, you know, not everyone kind of gets on with it straight away because it is so different. And I think it requires a little bit of a different mindset um, from, your, from, your, from your typical racing game. Because obviously, you know, we're kind of we're, we're tipping the racing genre in its head almost at that point, whereby we're saying that, you know, if you make a mistake or fall behind or crash, you're put right back in the action. The concept that there isn't a first place, you know, raising a head isn't necessarily a benefit. And that was very foreign to a lot of people. And I can understand how that could turn off a lot of people, uh, which made it, you know, a very challenging game to, to market. But from my perspective as a, as a creative and, you know, and the rest of the team, we had confidence in that the game was a huge amount of fun. Um, so, you know, we, I wasn't too worried about it from that perspective because, you know, I, I just knew I was making a good game I was confident in and, um, you know, I hope that that underlying core, you know, quality that, that sits beneath would shine through to, you know, to do it well. It brings up an interesting point because uh, when I think about Onrush and, and Brendan, and I, I think we've talked about this in the past, uh, kind of think back to uh, the old Bizarre Racer blur that they did for Activision and just like, mm. you know, I definitely agree. aspects of racing games are there, but you're trying to broaden it out. You're trying to maybe create more of a competitive element. <laughs> Uh, to broaden the genre and I wonder given that Blur had all of this pressure Bizarre had all this pressure pressure pace, placed on them sorry from Activision with Blur and it didn't pan out and Onrush was difficult to market do you still believe you know even though Onrush was critically acclaimed we both enjoyed playing it do you believe that that market actually exists for a racing game that can break down those barriers because it seems like almost anytime someone tries to do it 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 just some some aspect of it doesn't get communicated to the audience. I think it's a, it's a challenging one when you're you know putting the product out at, at full price. I think it's one of those situations where maybe it might have been better to take a different business strategy. You know, to go free to play to to get more people to get their hands on with the product to to give it a chance. Because I think yeah, it's definitely challenging to bring in that wider audience. You know, how do you get? Your, your Rocket League player or your Overwatch players that come and try out a game like Onrush, you know, something that's a racing game from an outsider's perspective but when you play it, you know, it's something quite different. Right. So um, I can com- completely see, you know, where you're coming from there. So um, would I have done things differently? Yeah, I think I would have made some different decisions and maybe things might have turned out differently. It's difficult to say, but, um, you know, who knows? <laughs> One of the things that really shocked me about the game, and it really shouldn't have based on drive mode, was how like amazingly pretty it could look. Like because obviously a lot of the trailers and stuff focused on the chaos of the game because that all the fun is. But when when you're on some of the tracks and the weather effects kick in and you see the kind of sunrise or sunset, it's absolutely stunning. Like in the way Onrush was built on the Ego engine, wasn't it as well? Um. It was actually a completely new engine, um, Armrush, because it was one of those things where we'd learned so much from working on, on Drive Club. Um, we had that kind of technical knowledge and foundation to 
you know, to take things to the next level, but not be bound by some of the, the bad decisions we did in the past. So it was actually one of those awesome things for our team to actually have a fresh start, kind of mid-generation. And it was that kind of situation where it was, um, you know, I think it was led by Ollie Wright and Rich Taylor, um, you know, some of our senior guys to, you know, to build a new engine. And we knew straight from the off, you know, how we wanted to construct that and where we could get other benefits and gains for that in such a short period of time. And I think that's one of the, the main achievements, I think, of that project, if anything else, was that within that short space of two years, we started from scratch. Obviously, we had a, a lot of really fantastic support from Cold Masters. Um, but we started from scratch, you know, built a new game, uh, an original game uh, on a completely new engine, um, released on time to budget and all that sort of stuff. Um, and, you know, we, we, we achieved some of that. Yeah, as you say, I think looked really good. And that's, I think, yeah, just because the team, we, we work so well together. We had so many kind of graphics um, coders and fantastic artists, all of which have worked together for, <sighs> difficult to say, but, you know, quite a lot of them have been working, you know, in that, in that same environment for a decade, you know, side by side. And we knew how to get the best out of one another. It was one of the situations where you knew who to go to, you knew who could fix a problem. Um, and it was such a smooth development from that perspective in terms of building the engine, building the tools. And uh, yeah, couldn't be prouder of the guys who worked in it and made a fantastic looking game in such a short period of time. Definitely grave you to point that out because, yeah, the, the turnaround that Onrush uh, was producing just astounds me. You know, all of the challenges of modern development, coupled with the fact that you're at a new studio, uh, you know, working with a certain degree of new people, even though a lot of your team was there and you've been working with those guys for a while. You you do, like, through all these experiences uh, working for these different companies on these very different projects, you know, you it seems like you carry a lot with you. It seems like, you know, lessons are definitely learned and, and there are inf- efficiencies gained there. Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, as a game industry, we're quite, you know, I think we're still in our infancy in, in some respects and we're still learning you know, how to make games better, I think, every single project that we make. And, you know, I've only been in the industry for a short time period compared to a lot of people, I think, you know, 15 years or so, where people have been in the industry for like 30 plus years. We had, you know, John Gibson, who worked on, I think, all WRCs, Mortstorms, and he's retired now, you know, he's worked in the industry that long. Um, and so, yeah, experience, I think, matters. It really does help, especially when you're on such large projects. You know, when you're working with, 50 plus, 100 plus um, sort of teams. I think you need a lot of experienced people in that to kind of keep the engine oiled well and get it running smoothly because it's so easy to make simple mistakes, simple mistakes that can ripple through the entire development process for a big team. I think when you're working with a small team, you can you can afford a little bit in some respect to make those mistakes and um, you can turn things around a little bit quicker. But when you're in kind of a uh, you know a machine where one mistake can impact you know 50 other people it can result in you know days of downtime or um you know hundreds of thousands of pounds of development budget just being thrown away so it's it's really important i think to have those kind of key leads and people within your team to you know to make sure that you know when you're working on that scale things run smoothly because it's it's so easy for things to trip up and i've been there in the past where things have gone wrong and it's very hard to recover um, so having those experienced people around you to make things just kind of roll smoothly was a pleasure on Onrush. 
after that, uh, you're in kind of a uh, interesting situation again um, with Codemasters Evo being shut down. Imagine there was a bit of deja vu there. Um, yeah, it's, it's one of those, I, I can't really talk much about the transition, unfortunately. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's you know I've been in the industry long enough to to realize that you know it's a business and how things are run and. Um, you know, it's one of those unfortunate things in that I don't think there's enough job security, you know, within the industry as a whole. I was very fortunate to be at Sony uh, yeah. for more than a decade, which I think if you look at a lot of people's careers, you don't get the opportunity to stay at one one games development, you know, for, for that long. So I've been very fortunate in that respect. Um, but I think it's also important that, you know, you, 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 um, you know, you, you, you network and you, um, you kind of build relationship with people across the industry because even though um, it might look like I'm you know, head down at Evo or Coldmaster or whatever, you know it's it's a small world really. You know there isn't there isn't you know millions of developers making games and you know I think we all you know within the racing genre anyway. There's a lot of people who know one another and um, you know I was always confident that whatever happened I'd, I'd have somewhere to go to and you know continue making racing games or making other exciting products. So. Um, you know, whilst it wasn't uh, an ideal experience, let's say, um, you know, I'm very happy with how things have turned out. I mean, do you feel as if when this the story kind of got broke by Eurogamer, pretty much they were one of the first. Do you feel as if that type of coverage helps kind of point out how hard it is sometimes in industry to, to kind of have that job security, or do you feel as if it draws an unnecessary eye to it? from a public perspective because I don't think we have to tell you of all people Paul like in general gamers can be pretty uninformed about the <laughs> process and what actually happens going into making a game no, I think that you just mentioned like the people aren't informed enough I think that you know articles like um, Eurogame or Jason uh, Scryer's um, if that's how you pronounce his name uh, on Kotaku and all these sort of reporting behind the scenes I think we need things like that to to you know, to let people know, you know, what is happening behind the scenes, how the games are made, and what really goes into, you know, kind of making a product, you know, so big and so complex. Um, so you know, if anything, I hope it only drives more conversation about you know games development because I think you get a lot of people who, you know, think games are dead easy to make or that you can you can <laughs> just go in you can just go into games development with little to no experience. Um, you see all those sort of CVs come in, you know, they've got an idea for a game or they've written a story and they think that's enough to get a job. And yeah, I think there's not enough in terms of the education process um, to make people understand how games are really made. I mean, it's one of the fortunate things I went, I went to university to study games development. Um, and while it was rough around the edges of the course, because it was one of the first courses in the UK to specialise in, in games development, um, it's still... I learned a lot about, you know, how games were put together. We had industry experts come into university and tell us a little bit about what happens behind the scenes. And before that point, I had no idea how, you know, big budget games got made. Yeah, I had no insider information or kind of yeah, the kind of reality of what happens. And um, I'm glad these sort of things are being talked about a lot more because um, I think it is making people a bit more understanding. Um me as to how these how these massive games get made and I think the more that can be done about it the better and um, I think it, it is changing attitudes a little bit it's going to take time 
but it, I think it is it is benefiting us as developers that players understand more about what you know what goes into a game. I think that the gaming media and from some outlets anyway is definitely shifting towards a more informed type of content and that can only be good because ridiculous comments all the time like why are you writing about this just tell us what games are coming out and <laughs> all that that comes from like the older way that video games were perhaps viewed but it's a move to be more inclusive and try and understand the process that goes on behind it I think like Jason's uh, book as well that he brought out recently and, yes uh, I've read that yeah. yeah and it's fantastic like it just mm. it makes you realise just how brutal these things can be and maybe sometimes as consumers we we get a bit too um, concerned with what we consume <laughs> rather than <laughs> the process behind it yeah I think that comes back to a comment I made earlier about how the games industry is you know, kind of in its infancy still. I mean, compared to other media forms such as, as film, which are well-established, you know, people understand how films are made. And if anything, films are, yeah, that they're much better at, the, at their art, their craft at, you know, pulling together films, you know, more frequently, more successfully, more, you know, on time and to budget. And, um, you know, we're still learning how to, you know, to make sure that every single game that we, we build is kind of... Um, you know, delivered on time and budget. You see how many games get get delayed or have have issues behind the scenes. It's a very challenging environment to work within. And the problem with our, you know, with our scene is that you know technology is ever evolving. You know, you've you've heard information just last week about the PlayStation Five or PlayStation Next or whatever that is. And you know, it's 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 kind of you know the sand is shifting beneath our feet all the time. So there's always new challenges that that lie ahead for us and. They're exciting. Don't get me wrong, because I can't wait for the next generation to come along. Because that, you know, allows developers to kind of, you know, spread their wings a bit more, do things they they weren't able to do last generation. But it, you know, it, it inevitably means that we've got to learn a lot of things from scratch. Potentially, um, there'll be new things to do in these new pieces of the hardware that we haven't done before. It only means more people, um, more investment, and. Yeah, it, it, it just never stops, really, in terms of games development. It, it doesn't get any easier ever. <laughs> well, it's a good time for you know us to be on the crux of a new generation because you uh, a, a new start for everyone. And you have recently uh, joined Slightly Mad Studios, which uh, I'm sure our listeners know, uh, the company produces Project Cars. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, uh, how long have you been there so far? It's been a pretty short time, right? Yeah, not been too long. Um, it will have been... End of August, beginning of September, that sort of time frame last year. So what's that, about six months, seven months? Yeah, how are you finding it so far? Well, it's, it's a very different sort of environment because obviously I've worked in an office um, for, for 15 or so years, you know, working face-to-face with, with, with a team, essentially. And we've now got a distributed development platform whereby I'm working at, at home in my, in my you know, own little office space and I'm collaborating with, you know, 100 plus people from around the world in different time zones to, to build games. And yeah, it's a big shift. It's a very different experience. And, um, you know, it takes a short while to get used to. It's definitely one of those things where it's not something you can just dive into and kind of get on with it straight away. But now I think I'm kind of in the groove, uh, understanding how to communicate differently. You know, it's not the sort of thing where you kind of, you get up, walk around the office, talk to people. You know, you've got to be, um, on Discord, on um, on Skype, on 
uh, Slack and all these various communication things to you know be on video calls, voice calls, text chat, uh, and talking to people you know all day long in that form. It's it's um, yeah, it's a new challenge, but I'm I'm enjoying it. Yeah, it's uh, definitely one of those things where um, there's a lot of benefits that come from working from home as well. It's one of the cool perks of the job where you've got a lot more flexibility uh, in a day to day. I mean, maybe the parent now as well. Um, definitely helps with that kind of work-life balance side of things. Um, but yeah, it's been a fun introduction and uh, yeah, exciting times ahead, I think, for the studio. I think there are certain people that are well-suited to work from home and, and certain people that aren't. And I know Brenda and I have had uh, some experience freelancing and, and uh, various jobs we're working from home. And uh, I think it's it sounds all rosy and everything, but this is a bit of an acquired taste. You really have to kind of reflect on your workflow and how you communicate with people to the point where like I can do it probably a couple days in a row but if I've been doing it for too long I'm like I really want to go into an office or <laughs> be able to just walk over to someone's desk and handle this face to face I think that there are definitely certain people who gel with it and other people just won't get along with it and uh, it's just one of those things um, I, I was I was fortunate it has gelled with me I'm quite enjoying it now um and the cool thing is that even though we, you know, I don't get to, you know, speak to the guys face to face every day, um, there's quite a lot of guys who, you know, work at Slightly Mad with me who actually just live around the corner. So once a month we go down to a pub somewhere in the middle and we all get to meet up and, and say hello, sort of things. So, you know, see each other face to face. Obviously not the whole studio because, like yeah. I said, all around the world. But there's uh, enough of them that kind of live around this northwest area, um, working with us at Slightly Mad. Um, that we can all kind of get together on a regular basis, which is awesome. Sound like it's good fun. I mean, uh, you said yourself, it's quite a change. And um, in terms of like slightly mad studios from an outsider's perspective, it definitely seems like they're one of the more um, ambitious studios in the, in the genre just now in terms of what they want to achieve. Because even when you look at the original project Cars, what, what they tried to achieve was unprecedented at the time. Yeah, I think when you look at the guys who are kind of running the studio, you know, Ian Bale, um, um, and uh, Andy Gartland, uh, Andy Tudor, and those sort of guys, you know, they're really, they're really ambitious, and they want to do new, fresh, and exciting things. So, I think you know, whatever you hear from us next, it's always going to be something that will often surprise you, um, not necessarily what you expect. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, unfortunately, I can't talk about you know certain things like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, that's one of the exciting things about working at Slightly Mad. Um, you know, when you see new announcements and all this kind of discussion and chatter that goes on in the background and what's happening behind the scenes at the studio, it, it really feels like there's, you know, a dozen things happening at any one time, all of which sound like really exciting avenues that we could go down. So yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's definitely a different sort of thing where uh, previous studios never really had so many kind of things going on at once. You know, it was always kind of get your head down on one project most of the time. But here it's, yeah, it's it's it's, it's cool to have so much kind of, um, I guess, creativity and ambition going on behind the scenes. Obviously, I'm trying to stay focused on the game that I'm working on. But yeah, it's, it's cool that there's so much going on elsewhere in the studio as well. Yeah, so uh, speaking of the game you are working on, uh, I'm sure you can't give too many details, but uh, we're, we're all very excited to find out exactly what it is. Um, any anything you could give us is it is it looking similar to maybe certain things from your past or is it is it another kind of onrush turn the genre upside down type thing 
Uh, my lips are sealed in this one, unfortunately. Mm. It's definitely something I can't say a word on. You know, all I can say is that um, I'm having a really great time uh, working on this game. Um, you know, it's one of those games where it's really fun to you know, say, go into the office, you know, <laughs> go into my room, <laughs> you know, and, and play it every day and see it come along so quickly. Um, yeah, I'm really, really pleased with what I'm working on, but I can't say a word about what it is or when we're going to be able to talk about it or anything, unfortunately. It's, uh, it's definitely a, a case of too early to really talk about it right now. As long as it's a sequel to Shock's Rally Reinvented, I'll be fine with it. <laughs> ah, Shock's Rally. I remember that back in the PS2. That was fun. Shock's got the rushy seal of approval, people. Go buy all the old copies on eBay. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's a bit of our... Uh... Inside inside joke here of just uh, Brendan, Brendan really pushing for that shock sequel after all these years. But, uh, uh, was that EA Big wasn't it, I think? Yeah, EA Sports Big. Yeah. In a way, uh, you know, with all the extreme sports elements, a spiritual successor to Onrush. So uh, ideas really do come full circle. <laughs> but oh, this is um, not related to. Uh, your career path or what you're currently working on it's just a bit of a fun question but mm-hmm. if you could work on any major racing ip that's active or defunct what would you choose easy ridge racer oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. i'm a massive fan of ridge racer and uh, uh yeah I, I just don't know what happened to it obviously after the glorious ridge racer type 4 it hasn't. I really enjoyed six and seven, and you know the other titles in the series. But you know, I'd love to see it come back and do something fresh and innovative uh, with that series. Um, you know, it's one of those games that I played back in the arcade uh, when I was much, much younger, and uh, you know, it brings back all those memories of the early PlayStation One era, and kind of grew up with it in many respects. And it's kind of sad that it's just it's sat there dormant right now. So I'd love to take that game and do something with it. Yeah, I, I think I speak for uh, all the Time Extend listeners uh, when I say that we would all very much like to see you work on that franchise because it could, uh, it could definitely. I mean, it's been it's been dormant for so long now, and it could definitely use a a fresh mind behind it because uh, there's a lot of history there, and it is really one of the you know progenitors to the the modern you know 3D arcade racer. Yeah, I don't think you can really talk about, you know, racing games and where they originated from without bringing Ridge Racer, you know, into that conversation. It's, you know, it's a seminal title, which is, you know, um, it's got so much steeped history uh, in this genre in particular. Um, so yeah, it would would be a pleasure to do that. But that's one of those dreams you know, that you kind of have, and um, I would love to do that. I mean, that would be, you know. If that came along, I would absolutely, you know, snap someone's hand off to, to get an opportunity to work on Ridge Racer. Um, so you never know. If someone's listening, you know, give, give me a Ridge Racer. <laughs> hey, you, you, uh, you should maybe talk some of your colleagues are slightly mad because I think the Project Cars have a... Uh, uh, they cooperated with Namco who uh, published the game in certain markets uh, and they had mm-hmm. the uh, Ridge Racer liveries on some of the cars, I think, in Project Cars as I DLC. I believe so, yeah. 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 Yeah, because obviously I I do work with um, Banana Namco. They're, um, they're, they're, you know, they're, um, they work with us as, as publisher on various titles in the past that are slightly more studio. So we have got a relationship with them. So 
obviously I'm kind of new to the studio and I haven't really got those relationships in place yet to go and beg someone yet to give me the IP. <laughs> it's okay, Paul. We'll we'll beg Namco for you. Eventually, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, sort of type four is your favourite game of all time. Then, Rushy racing game, would you say? Um, oh, it's such a challenging one, really, because it's one of those where um, I've made the mistake of going back to play some of my favourite racing games from previous generations because it's I find it's one of those genres that doesn't always hold up quite as well um, as like classic 2D platformers that seem to never age but 3D racing games in particular do seem to age so badly because Project Gotham Racing uh, like 1 and 2 um, fantastic titles or Metropolis um, MSR and Dreamcast yep. um, love that racing game but you know, I, I, at one point I was a massive retro gamer. I kept all the consoles, and occasionally I'd break out some of the old racing games, and I'd be like, "Ooh, this isn't <laughs> quite how I remembered it." Um, so, I think yeah, Ridge Type Four is one of my favorite racing games of all time. But does it stand up now? I don't know because I, I tend to change my favorite game of all time as I as I play new games, often replacing those in the past. Yes, they have. A lot of nostalgia, but I also recognise how games have come on so much in such a short space of time as well. Um, but yeah, that's that's definitely my favourite in the series of Ridge Racing, no doubt about that. Well, I've been noticing uh, on Twitter you seem to be enjoying Sekiro a lot, uh, which is really exciting to uh, to see your progress through that game and uh, and all the excitement. And it makes me think that like, yeah, going back to uh, I think you you talked about the. Uh, kind of on the cusp of onrush wanting to do something new you know do you do you see yourself are you trying to push to to get outside this genre kind of get a fresh look at things fresh breath of air and uh explore a different aspect different genre that definitely would be a, a fun challenge at some point in my career um to, uh, to dive into a different genre um and i think there were opportunities for me to go and do something like that but i still feel like i've got quite a lot to offer within the racing genre i've still got ideas that i want to see um you know in in racing games that haven't been done before just yet and uh, i want to kind of you know continue uh, to build great racing games because i know that that's something i can do well hopefully hopefully i've been agreed with that um and you know i still feel like i've got more to offer in the genre and you know want to passionately still work in racing games because I don't play as many racing games in my spare time as I as I used to because I work on so many. Um, but it's something I'm still passionate to to to, to do, you know, to, to build, to create. Uh, which is why you often see on my Twitter feed and stuff like that I don't tweet about as many racing games as you might expect because I, I like to have that kind of that contrast and variety, and I take a lot of inspiration from other games. Uh, I'm not sure there's too many ideas I can take from Sekiro, but uh, uh, <laughs> being impossibly hard maybe would be one. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, yeah, it, it is a challenge. Uh, although it is one of those games where I I don't think I'm the best gamer by any any means. Um, you know, when I see people do you know speed runs of bosses and things, it's like oh, how are they doing that? Um, but I do think Sekiro is one of those games where it's, it's more about your knowledge. Yes, there's the skill and the timing, and there's, there is obviously elements like that. But I find that learning, um, you know, how the how the game works and all these little tricks and intricacies of the game can make life so so much easier. Because um, I was actually thinking, oh my god, I have to bang my head at a wall 
you're trying to beat this boss for days and end and if anything i haven't kind of hit that brick wall yet so whenever i've kind of got stuck a little bit i'll just go and do some research read up online watch videos and listen to the community and it's amazing what sort of support you can get from people to to get yourself through these things so um yeah reward you for fun. paying attention <laughs> mm, yes very much so yeah i think it's one of the things you get slapped down if you if you're not paying attention yeah definitely so yeah are we uh are we good brand or anything else i don't think i have any more um rapid fire questions for you paul so you can rest mm-hmm. <laughs> that's fine <laughs> it's it's always a bit weird doing the show over uh you know over discord and just being like where are we are we are we about good to wrap this up but uh <laughs> but no it's uh yeah such a pleasure having you on paul and uh obviously we're both very very excited to see what you do next is slightly mad and we could not thank you enough for uh being a, a great enough guest and a, and a cool enough guy to come on our humble little racing game podcast so thank you no it's been an absolute pleasure no thanks for inviting me on and um it's always good to, to reminisce about the past and talk about racing games so yeah it's been awesome no cheers all right thank you so much paul and uh thanks everyone for listening and uh yeah we'll see you again soon 